Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on double one nine two five kilohertz on the 25 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at this hour. Togo's main opposition coalition boycotts December elections and South Africa's ruling ANC chairperson testifies at the state capture inquiry. In economics news, investors urge to tap into Kenya's blue economy. And in sports news, South Africa's Bangana Bangana reach Africa Women's Cup of Nations final. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari will visit troops on the front lines of the Boko Haram conflict. Buhari will also dispatch his defense minister to Chad following a jump in attacks. The presidential visit comes after months of deadly raids by the ISIS-affiliated jihadists on military bases which have left scores of troops dead or missing in the volatile northeast. The 75-year-old former general who is running for re-election in February presidential polls is under pressure over claims the nine-year Islamist insurgency was close to defeat. In a posting on Twitter on Monday, presidential spokesperson Bashir Ahmed said Buhari would on Wednesday attend an army conference in Maiduguri as well as address troops to boost their morale. In the latest attack last week, militants raided a base in Metal village near the border with Niger, leaving at least 43 soldiers dead, although troops who survived put the death toll at more than 100. Ten Cameroonian separatist leaders extradited from Nigeria earlier this year will face trial next month on terrorism charges that could lead to the death penalty. The accused include Julius Ayuktabe, leader of an Anglophone separatist movement in Western Cameroon fighting to break away from the Francophone-dominated central government. Hundreds of people, including civilians, separatist fighters and Cameroonian security agents, have been killed in the past year's violence, which has emerged as the most serious security threat to President Paul Bia in power for 36 years. The trial is scheduled to begin on December 6. Israel's Prime Minister says he will soon travel to the Central African nation of Chad to officially restore relations. Benjamin Netanyahu made the announcement on Tuesday in a meeting with visiting Chadian President Idris Deby in Jerusalem. Deby's visit is the first by a president of Chad, a Muslim-majority country that broke off relations with Israel in 1972. Netanyahu's visit is a part of an overall policy of seeking allies among developing countries that have historically sided with the Palestinians at the UN and other international forums. Chad has played a key role in combating jihadi groups in the Sahara. 
South African political parties in Parliament's Communications uh, Committee have spoken unanimously that the public broadcaster SABC needs funding to rescue it from the current financial crisis it's facing. The committee was also unanimous in speaking out against the proposed retrenchments. Some members say they are not convinced that the last resort has been reached to justify retrenchments. Ruling party ANC's Lerumo Kalako. We want to save the SABC. What is the first thing? All of us, let's push for SABC to get this three billion. All of us. And government, by all means, must come to the party chair. We can't, you know, just fold our arms and say an institution as big as it is and very important for the country. No, it just dies. We can't do that. But that depends on how the SABC leadership is is perceived both by government and also the public out there. And finally, an explosion near a chemical factory in northern China has left at least 22 people dead and over 20 others injured. The blast occurred at the entrance of the factory when a vehicle transporting dangerous chemicals blew up, igniting surrounding vehicles. The incident in Zhangxiaku City left 38 trucks and 12 cars burned out, according to Chinese media. The BBC's Stephen McDonald reports. Video footage from the approaches to the Hebei Shenghua chemical factory shows cars and trucks lining the street already ablaze. At around midnight local time, a series of blasts and fires appear to have been ignited by one of these vehicles. Dozens of people have died and dozens more are in hospital. The plant in Jiangjiakou has ceased production. The city to the northeast of Beijing will host Alpine events at the 2022 Winter Olympics. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The main opposition coalition in Togo says it will boycott December 20th parliamentary elections and has called for further protests over what it alleges will be a fraudulent poll. Togo's constitutional court has validated ballots for 12 parties, but not any for the 14-party opposition coalition that has staged protests in the former French colony over the past year. Ballots for 17 independent candidates have also been approved. Togo's political crisis has been going on since September 2017 when protesters took to the streets in the capital Lome to demand President Fore Nasingbe's resignation. Nasingbe has been in power since 2005 following the death of his father who ruled the country for 38 years. For more on the opposition's boycott of the upcoming election, Channel Africa spoke to Lamine Saidi Khan, coordinator of the Pan-African movement, Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity. I think um, the opposition is on the track, on the right track, uh, based on the analysis and as well, you know, the movement that we support there. The Togo debut uh, about a month ago, stage, um, uh, street, took the streets of, of uh, Lome, you know, protesting, demanding for the free of uh, all the political prisoners or the release of all the political prisoners. So it's like the government, the government of uh, Nyasimbe is in control of the 
Ultra Institute is also in control of the police and the army. So the, the likelihood of the fraudulent, fraudulent elections is very much high. So the oppositions are, uh, you know, they not trust the electoral system. They need a robust uh, reform in the whole uh, electoral uh, process. So uh, they, that's why they are demanding for uh, a boycott. Now, why do you think uh, the Togolese government is uh, reluctant to introduce the reforms because those reforms are part of the ECOWAS roadmap, uh, which include the release of political prisoners, as you have mentioned, constitutional and institutional reforms, as well as the inclusion of the opposition in the organization of the 2020 elections. Why is there some kind of reluctance on the part of the Togolese authorities with regards to these proposed uh, reforms? It is clearly manifested in the in the protests and then in the struggles and the demand for change that people want to see an end of an end to the 52-year regime of the uh, Nyasimbe family. You all know that the Nyasimbe family have been ruling uh, Togo for the past 52 years. So the demand is very high that people want change. People want to, um, people are fed up with the, the, the family and then they are the rule of the family. So what is happening, I think the government is very much alert that uh, when they allow the reforms, um, obviously they will lose the power because people are really very hungry for, for, for the needed change. So if the reforms are put in the place the way it has been recommended, the government will obviously lose in, in the polls. Now, is it your view then that uh, conducting uh, these elections without the necessary reforms will not solve the Togolese question that it will only intensify tensions and violence in the country? Yes, I have that strong belief because I, I am very much connected to the Togolese uh, situation. I remember I was arrested there last year. So what is clear is that um, uh, you know the government is... is is in, in, in control of all the different systems. So they don't want to, you know, go into any reform to allow the, the majority of the people to have their voice in this process of uh, political reform. So ev- eventually, um, when, when there is elections, uh, obviously people will not accept the results. People will be on the streets. And there will be a lot of people killed. There will be a lot of arrests. Because, you know, people really are afraid of the system. And they won't change. What do you think the ECOWAS group should do at this point uh, over and above the roadmap that has been uh, in place? The ECOWAS need to respect the, the demands and the wills of the people. They need to put pressure on, on Togolese government to ensure that there are proper reforms that are in place before the elections are conducted. They should stop all the election processes going on and then ensure that reforms are put in place. And all the political prisoners uh, need to be released. ECOWAS need to uh, save the, save, safeguard the rights and the livelihood of the people that they represent, that they said they are put uh, together for. Uh, they said echoes of the people. We want to see echoes of the people representing the interests of the people of Togo. So I want to see echoes demanding for the immediate release of the political prisoners and all the activists that are in jail right now. And I also want to see echoes demanding for a hold of an election process until all reforms are in place. That's Lamin Sadi Khan, a coordinator of the Pan-African movement, Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity, on the line from Dakar in Senegal, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele.
South Africa's ruling ANC, led by its national chairperson and former Secretary-General Gwede Mandashe, has admitted that state capture was a reality. Mandashe told the State Capture Commission sitting in Johannesburg that Gupta-owned company Oak Bay Investments met the ANC to persuade it to put pressure on the banks to reopen their accounts. The ANC only presented its evidence dealing with the banks. It is expected to come back again to respond to other issues. Mbali Tetani reports. The ANC led by its national chairperson Gwede Mandashe presented its evidence to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. Mandashe told the Commission that State Capture was a reality. The ANC says it met the Gupta-owned company after Oakbay Investments bank accounts were closed. They wanted to discuss potential losses of jobs. In his return request to meet, uh, Hazamo also stated that the number of banks had caused to work with the company uh, have ceased to work with the company to the extent that it had become virtually impossible to to continue conducting business in South Africa. So those are the two main points that were discussed with Oakbay. After two meetings with Oakbay, Mandasha told the commission that the party then met with the banks. Mandasha testified that Oakbay wanted the ANC to exert pressure on the banks to reopen the company's accounts so it could pay its employees. There were two meetings of Oakbay. First of all, because they wanted to convince us on their case where they even look into their structure as a company, how difficult it is for them to get licenses when they've applied. Then they came to this issue of all the banks having refused to do business with them. And therefore, impossible to have a transactional bank that would process their payments, including payments of salaries. And in the second meeting? That is, the second meeting was more emphasizing on the closure of accounts. The first one was more outlining what is the structure of the company, how it works. What intervention did they seek, you know, from the, from the ANC? Actually, many of the organizations they lobbied was to put pressure on the banks Uh, to reopen their accounts and they actually thought that we'll join that campaign as the ANC. Earlier it was former GCIS head Mzwane Lemani versus advocate Vincent Maleka. This after Mani accused Maleka of being inconsistent when posing questions to him. Mani asked Maleka to recuse himself from cross-examination but later withdrew his request saying he did not want it to look as if he was standing in the way of the commission establishing the truth. Their poetry which they were reciting here was not interrogated but me every step of the way uh, I had to be interrogated. If Mr. Malega sees nothing wrong with that kind of inconsistency, uh, which I was assuming that as an honorable person you would acknowledge that and then we can move forward. I can't move forward then, Chairperson, with a person who cannot admit when something is so blatantly wrong. So I request that he must recuse himself and any member of the other legal team can continue from where he left off. Maleka then cautioned the commission to be careful in considering Mani's request, saying it would set a precedent that would allow witnesses to choose who could question them. It would be a sad day that witnesses come before you and choose who must ask questions of them because we might be setting a precedent which will begin to limp the commission in its important duty to discover the truth. 
For those two reasons, I would ask you to seriously consider the utility of an application for recusal. The Commission will now hear the testimonies of former Minister of Public Service and Administration, Mwakurama Klodi, and his former advisor, Sam Morphy, Ambali Tetani, in Parktown in Johannesburg. South African opposition party, the EFF, has opened criminal charges against Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon and his daughter Anisha Gordon. The party is retaliating after Gordon laid charges of criminal injuria, defamation of character, as well as inciting violence against party leaders Julius Malema and Floyd Mabo at the Brooklyn police station on Monday. The EFF headed to the same police station to open five criminal charges against the Godans, which include, among others, contravention of the Intelligence Act, money laundering, perjury and fraud. Pumzilem Nangeni reports. The feud between the EFF and Pravin Godan is heating up as they take their battle to law authorities. The Red Berets want Godan to be investigated for crimes he allegedly committed between 1999 and 2014, which include his role in the formation of the SARS rogue unit, his alleged participation in state capture as a member of the cabinet, and perjury for allegedly lying in respect of his meetings with the Guptas. The party also wants him to be investigated for allegedly opening and operating an unlawful foreign bank in Canada with a balance of over 48 million US dollars. EFF leader Julius Malema claims he's got people prepared to speak on this bank account. I said to the police, I've got a list of people who were told to put the money and given an account. I've got the list of people who have put the money into the account. They are prepared. They are prepared to speak on condition you offer them that section where uh, indemnity, where if they come forward with information, they will not be charged. Malema says he's unfazed by the charges laced against them by Godan. Why is he opening a case on civil claims? Because civil claim you don't open a case. You just write a letter from the lawyers and say to Malema, withdraw what you said and apologize, otherwise I'm suing you 150. Now he comes here to disturb this police who are doing a wonderful job here by bringing useless charges which means nothing. We brought real stuff here. He's also defended his attack on Godan, where he labeled him as corrupt and the dog of the white monopoly capital. Malema has equated his statements to free speech. There should be a difference between a lecture room and a political platform. Calling a fellow politician a dog is no hate at all. Rebijana dincha all the time, incha again. So Pravini Kinchama Kwa Tweringi The talk of white monopoly capital. Malema also announced the party will no longer allow Sunday Time journalists at their events. He however says this decision he however says this decision is not an attack on the media. When we expose the inconsistency of the media, it's not a war against the media i said to you outside the commission don't harm them don't attack them physically but go for them intellectually make them disappear cut the head intellectually the fighters have also laid perjury and fraud charges against gordon's daughter anusha 
They say she participated in government businesses as front for her father. I am Pumzilim Langeni in Pretoria. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. The Congress of South African Trade Unions, KOSATU, and the South African Communist Party, the SACP, have dismissed a draft ANC discussion document on the reconfiguration of the alliance as inadequate and not taking the alliance forward. The government party has prepared a 29-page document with eight recommendations that seek to improve alliance relations. This followed complaints by COSATU and the SACP that the alliance is only taken seriously when elections are around the corner. Our political correspondent in Mukobo has more. With less than six months before the 2019 elections, the ANC and its alliance partners, COSATU and the SACP, are working to improve relations that would see them campaigning together for an ANC victory. Their formations, together with civic organization SANCO, will hold an alliance summit next month, which will be preceded by the Alliance Political Council. In its discussion document, the ANC reiterates a position articulated at previous alliance summits that those who are elected on the party's ticket must toe its policy line. But the SACP First General Secretary Solima Paila says there is nothing new in the document. That document has got many shortcomings. First, it doesn't actually progress us forward regarding where the alliance is and where the alliance should be. If you take, for instance, our um, alliance summit of 2008, that alliance summit resolved that the alliance should be the strategic political center. And this document of the ANC deliberately ignores that aspect and it doesn't build on it, which we think is fundamental. It quotes extensively on the 2007 resolution of the Communist Party as well as that of COSATU. This is the major weakness of the document. It doesn't take us forward. His sentiments were echoed by COSATU General Secretary Pekin Chalinjali, who says the ANC document is outdated and very much a reaction to the SACP and COSATU documents instead of coming up with suggestions to improve alliance relations. We're asking, why are you telling us about the history of the alliance? As if some people don't know. We ask them, are you not spending half of the document or even three quarters of the document telling about the history? We know the history is important. The problem is that the alliance is not working in the manner it's supposed to be. Let's address that question. To us, the starting point is the state of the alliance. Is it working in the manner that we want? And then whatever contribution the ANC should be making should be trying to address that question. They are writing that document based on responding to COSATU document in the party and we said even that one is not the right way of doing it. Write your own document answer this question as an ANC is the alliance working? Is the ANC happy about the state of the alliance? Before you look to the COSATU document Despite the serious concerns that COSATU and the SACP have 
Solima Paila says they've scored many victories working together with the ANCS alliance partners. We have begun a process that, for instance, led to the removal of President Zuma, led to the defense of our constitution and our democracy, led to major interventions, whether it's in SAS, in ESCOM, in the WOCs, SSA, and all of that. These are the issues that, for instance, the Communist Party put on the table and fought for. The alliance responded, the government responded to all of those, but obviously the issue that will put more strength into the alliance at the moment is to clean ourselves regarding the perception in the public regarding the abuse of political office, including by deployees in government. And we think that the State Capture Commission, which is also one of the issues that we called for from within the alliance, should help us to do that. The State Capture is not the trial of the ANC. It's a process to cleanse ourselves. The form and direction of future tripartite alliance relations will likely be hard fought at the alliance summit planned for the 10th of next month. And what is resolved may have far-reaching implications for the ANC's election campaign. I am Debo in Johannesburg. Let's go back in time to today in 1987. A South African Airways Boeing 747 crashed into the Indian Ocean, killing all 159 people aboard. A fire which started from the main deck cargo hold caused the crash. Today in history, 1987. Not many school commutes involve having to go through checkpoints and body searches, but that's the daily reality for some 163 Palestinian youngsters in Hebron, a bustling city in the southern part of the West Bank. During a recent visit to the occupied Palestinian territory, UN Radio's Rim Abaza went inside the closed zone to speak with students and teachers from a Kurtuba school. To reach the closed military zone in the H2 area of Hebron, we had to go through an Israeli checkpoint. The moment my colleagues from the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, told the soldiers that we were from the United Nations, the soldiers asked for our IDs. They didn't inspect them closely, except for my Palestinian colleague who works with UNRWA and carried a Jerusalem ID. They asked him a few questions to make sure he could be given access. The whole thing didn't take more than a couple of minutes, and we left the busy streets of Hebron behind us through a revolving metal gate. It was as if we had stepped into another world, maybe onto what looked like an empty movie set. On one street named Ashohada, which means martyrs, nothing was moving. We were totally alone. On both sides of the street, there were rows of commercial stores sealed shut, either on the orders of the Israeli authorities or by owners who have had to leave because of the Israeli restrictions. Remember, this is a closed area, so having customers cross over from outside the gate is practically impossible. On the closed or abandoned stores were signs showing what life was like before the Israeli restrictions. Here must have been a health club, and another sign said it was once the Abu Khalil hair salon for men. The soldiers pushed the metal barrier in front of them to allow us climb the stairs through the door and into the school. Our life here is difficult. We're subjected to searches on our way to school at the checkpoint and to violence from the settlers. One day, a settler stopped us in the street and kept pushing us and yelling, get out of here. But we told her we're staying. Aisha Al-Azza, who is 13 years old, spoke angrily about the harassment and violence they say they are subjected to by settlers. All they want is freedom. 
We have the right to be educated and to arrive at the school safely. All we want is to live in freedom. I heard the same sentiments from 14-year-old Wa'de Sharabati, who said that she was using her education to challenge the Israeli occupation. She recounted one particular ordeal she and her friends had faced. One time I was going to school with my friends. A settler passed by. He had a vicious dog. He let it run after us. We were terrified and ran away. But after a little while, we went back to our school. The UN says that the living conditions of the Palestinians who remain in the closed and restricted areas have been gradually undermined, especially concerning basic services and a lack of job opportunities. Ocha says the isolation of the settlement area and its surroundings from the rest of the city of Hebron has severely disrupted the family and social life of Palestinians living there. The situation also has undermined their dignity and psychological, social well-being. One of the girls in Qurtoba school is 14-year-old Yara, who lives in a Shohada street very close to school. She is proud to tell you that she was ranked number one in her class. Even though our house is close to school, sometimes I need a long time to come here because of the restrictions. For example, one of the kids could be beaten up. I insist on coming to school because I have a goal to be a lawyer and defend my Palestinian issue. The director of the school, Noura Nassar, told us that Qortoba is surrounded by three Israeli settlements, and the daily trip requires children and teachers to pass through several electronic gates in addition to searches that she says are simply humiliating. Ms. Nassar, who has been the head of the school for the past six years, told us about an incident that led to injuries to herself and some of the students. With the cooperation with the Ministry of Agriculture, we organized an event to plant trees around the school. We were shocked to find a group of settlers attacking us and depriving us from planting the green trees. Some children were injured. I was helping them, and we took them to the hospital, and over there I found out that I was injured too. It is alleged that the attacks against the school children and their teachers are largely down to one particular settler. There are several video clips online that show the settler in confrontations with local Palestinians as well as foreigners who come to support them. The stress and impact of the journey to Qurtoba school on children is clear to see, according to Samah Nasreddin, social counselor at the school. We always work on the preventive and healing aspects depending on the children's cases. We try to provide them with a comfortable environment inside the school. We work on the psychological discharge and strategies to deal with stress and trauma. We teach them how to get rid of tensions and provide them with a safe place. The psychological problems experienced by students include an an inability to focus, being distracted in class, and trouble doing schoolwork. For UN News, I'm Reem Abaza. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
Good morning. In the headlines, former South African President Khalima Mutlanta's Commission of Inquiry into Zimbabwe's post-election violence in August concludes its phase of gathering oral evidence through public hearings. Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari to visit troops on the front lines of the Boko Haram conflict and 10 Cameroonian separatist leaders extradited from Nigeria earlier this year to face a trial next month on terrorism charges that could lead to the death penalty. I'll have details on these and other stories at the top of the hour. Seventy-five percent of all people living with HIV know their status. This according to a new report by the United Nations Joint Program on HIV and AIDS, UNAIDS. The report also calls for increased efforts to reach 9.4 million people living with HIV but not aware that they have the virus. UNAIDS Director of Strategic Information and Evaluation, Peter Guys, reports. So as we look at the progress in the HIV testing, we actually see that there is quite a bit of progress, as you pointed out to us today, about 75% of all people living with HIV know indeed that they are living with HIV and therefore have the possibility to go on treatment. And progress, it varies a little bit across uh, different regions in the world, but uh, in, uh, in the East and Southern Africa region, that includes South Africa, is actually quite high, and I think it's actually uh, more than 75% awareness of their status. The report does, however, acknowledge that there are still barriers to one knowing their status. Right, so some of the barriers that... Uh, continue to exist have to do with uh, accessibility of those services and then also to some extent like structural impediments for people to uh, to access that. Now Peter, the report also reveals that 9.4 million people still do not know their status and I was just wondering how exactly is it possible to determine such information? So it comes basically from, uh, let me say, two sources. So one is that uh, many countries actually have uh, like a case reporting system where each time that a person is diagnosed that that's captured in a database system and then all of that is fed up to uh, provincial capitals or the country's capital and so that is one source to know how many people actually know their status but then one other source that uh, informs on the like percent of people living with HIV that know their status is are the recent like national surveys because in recent times those surveys they ask like more questions about HIV specifically and whether people know their status so from those surveys we can have like a direct estimate of uh, the proportion of people who believe themselves to be living with HIV. That's Peter Guys, Director of Strategic Information and Evaluation at the United Nations Joint Programme on HIV and AIDS on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, speaking to Jane Rabutata.
It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. United Nations Children's Fund together with Facebook have teamed up to raise awareness about online harassment and sexting. The organizations are launching a virtual experience that unites fiction and reality to help young people understand the risks of sharing intimate pictures on the internet and what they can do in these situations. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Rayana Rasul, Communication for Development Specialist at UNICEF South Africa. Good morning, Rayana, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, and thank you for having me. Now, Rihanna, how pervasive would you say online harassment or bullying and sexting is not just among young people but also adults? Um, so, Lulu, we we don't have um, exact figures around online bullying and sexting in South Africa. But what um, but what UNICEF has done is in 2016 we did a kids online study, and we found that in terms of overall use of the internet, we know that 70% of children online are online in South Africa, and the main barrier for children being online that we found was actually the cost of data. And it seems that the activities that children mostly do are socializing, playing games, and there's some learning that happens online. Um, We also know that one in three children were upset or afraid of violence or gory images on the Internet. So that's one in three children. And then one in five children were treated in a nasty or hateful way by someone. Um, whether that was face-to-face or online. So we have data specifically linked to children, as I've just um, shown you. But in terms of adults and, and older and older young people, I would say, we still don't have accurate data around that. And the issue of online bullying, we, we know in terms of children and what's happening. There's a particular aspect of that. But then there's this aspect of sexting or sharing controversial or compromising content online. And I don't think that there's a huge awareness, number one, of what the consequences of doing that are. Now, talk to us about this initiative and how it works. How practical is the Mask A Raid app platform? So it's, it's, it's a very, we're very excited about it. And it's something that was done in Brazil. Um, in 2016, 2017, and actually they reached over 7 million people in Brazil through this particular um, um, messenger bot. So um, we've we've taken it and we've adapted it in South Africa, and we're also doing it in the Ukraine and Argentina. So what it is is that we've created an online bot which is a it which is a pretend profile called tembi tembi keshi so tembi basically um um you befriend tembi and you become tembi's friend for 48 hours and the platform is basically where tembi starts telling you about her experience where her her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend has just shared compromising pictures of her 
on the internet. And it's literally about the trauma that she's going through. She's asking you for advice, what she should do. And what we're trying to do is to bring the personal home in a way, is to say that, you know, this can happen to anybody. Um, somebody might just, you know, your boyfriend or somebody would ask you, well, you know, just send me a picture. And it might seem innocent, it might seem honest, it might seem all of these different things, and you share it and, and it could explode in your face in some ways. Now, does this program target specific countries or is it a global initiative? So it's at the moment, as I said, it was rolled in Brazil, and now Facebook has partnered with us um, in three countries. So it's South Africa, Ukraine, and Argentina. So we are the three countries that will be rolling out um, from now, basically. Yeah. Do you get a sense that uh, people know the dangers of sharing compromising images online and exactly how to protect themselves against harassment? You know, I don't, um, Lulu, I don't think so. I think there's, there's this um, perception that the Internet is, is not, if you share something, that it's not a forever thing, you know, that, it, that I think the, the gravity of sharing is not brought home. I think the idea of sharing and the knowledge of how to share and doing all of those things and in a world, I think, where we live with selfies every day and we live with different kind of sharing, um, it might seem like sexting is, is not that, um, you know, that pervasive or that, or that dangerous. But, I mean, you know, we've recently seen even um, high-level people doing this kind of thing. And so you wonder if high-level people can do it, what, what about just a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old, you know? Their perception or their depth of perception is not necessarily that honed yet. They don't always understand the consequences. And what we are trying to do is to really create that awareness for them and through Tembi to literally show them what Tembi's going through. Um, and, you know, it's not all doom and gloom because the one other thing we're trying to show with Tembi is also that, um, you know, that, that you are not alone. If this happens to you, you actually are not alone, that there are other people that this has happened to. And the reason why we know that is we're working with um, Emma Sadler, who is a, uh, a legal and, and psychological um, expert on this and she has done a short video for us at the end of your experience which literally shares some of her own experiences with clients that she's had and she says she receives hundreds of uh, of requests every day about people who are going through this rayana thank you so much for joining us we'll leave it there for now Thank you. That's Rihanna Russell, Communication for Development Specialist at UNICEF South Africa, joining us on the line. Channel Africa.
Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwezi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. The Malawan Department of National Parks and Wildlife has launched an investigation into the death of at least 22 hippos at Lewande National Park. The death, which happened over a period of two months, have raised fears that the wild animals could become extinct in the southern African country. It is suspected that the death may have been caused by suffocation due to animals occupying limited spaces and low water levels. Lewande National Park, which is in southern Malawi, Malawi currently has a population of 1,900 hippos. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to the director of the Department of National Parks and Wildlife, Brighton Kumchedwa. He says his department is working with the African Parks Organization, who are managing the national parks to establish the cause of the death. We have suffered such uh, hippo mortalities in one of our parks, Lewandu uh, National Park. I think um, the first were detected on uh, 10th of October when they were found floating. Uh, Those were eight carcasses. Uh, then this uh, uh, has been followed by other deaths. Uh, 20. Um, I mean, 22. Indeed, all the carcasses that have been discovered have been burned and buried. Now, what caused the deaths of uh, these hippos, uh, Mr. Kumchedwa? We do not have available responses or answers to the problem, to the cause. But uh, what we have done at the moment is we have partnered up with uh, Malawi, the General Department of Malawi, uh, and ourselves, Government of Arts and Wildlife, collecting samples, uh, water samples, uh, soil, and even grant samples to for possible causes. Unfortunately, this has to be done in designated lab, and this happened to be in Zambia, I think according to uh, World Animal Health Organization, I think uh, in Botswana, South Africa, and Zambia, something like that. Now, do you think hippos in Malawi are in danger of extinction given what happened? No, no, I, think, I don't think so. Uh, we, uh, we want to understand the problem. The only way this thing is happening is a, a, a hippo population of uh, of uh, over a thousand, close to two thousand, and when you look against the figure twenty two, I think they wouldn't say that the the, the hippo face extinction in Malawi. Uh, but uh, once we have understood the problem, possibly there should be some corrective measures. That's Brighton Kumchedwa. Director of National Parks and Wildlife Department in Malawi, on the line from the capital, Lilongwe, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Good morning. Campaigns for local and foreign investors to tap into Kenya's blue economy has entered its second day with President Uhuru Kenyatta urging investors and business leaders to take advantage of the blue economy by investing in it. 
Addressing participants on Tuesday, President Kenyatta observed that Kenya's blue economy remains untapped and carries the potential of economic growth as well as creating job opportunities for many Kenyans. The summit, which ends on Wednesday, attracted close to 17,000 participants, representing some 185 countries. Deliberations on factors inhibiting greater participation of Lesotho service providers in the mining sector will take center stage during a two-day forum to improve the sector's contribution to the country's economic growth. The sector is estimated to contribute 10% to Lesotho's gross domestic product and provides employment for about 3,000 people. The forum, which is termed Mining Hortla, Set for Wednesday and Thursday, we'll also identify key business opportunities within the mining sector that local private sector can specifically target. Kenya's central bank has held its benchmark lending rate at 9.0% on Tuesday, saying inflation remained within a band favoured by the government. Inflation fell to 5.5% in October from 5.7% the previous month. The government has a band of 25 to 7.5% in which it prefers inflation to stay over the medium term. One of South Africa's big four banks, FNB, says some customers won't have to insert their bank card into ATMs soon, and this as the bank will roll out a tap-and-pin technology across 100 of its ATMs and others will be upgraded in 2019. This is according to a statement issued by the bank on Tuesday. FNB will be the first bank in SA to offer this contactless innovation at ATMs. Technology giant Google has been accused of breaching European data protection laws by the way it tracks users' locations. Seven consumer organizations from across Europe say they will file complaints against Google with the National Data Protection Authorities. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. The consumer groups, represented by the European organization Bayer, claim that Google routinely collects location data on its users and employs what are described as tricks to make sure it has their permission to do so. Bayer says this data can reveal details of people's political leanings, religious beliefs, health conditions and even their sexuality, based on the places they visit. This can then be used for a wide range of purposes, including targeted advertising. Google insiders claim the technology giant does not, in fact, use location data for marketing purposes. The US dollar is trading at 10.35 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.86 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 3.90 Brazilian roll, at 66.95 Russian ruble, and at 70.67 Indian rupee, 6.94 Chinese yuan, 13.89 South African rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound, 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,214, platinum $830 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $60.70 a barrel. From an African perspective. A sports update up next with Figle Lingwati.
The Spa Proteas National Netball Team got their 2018 Diamond Challenge campaign to a good start as they convincingly beat Namibia 78-28 in Sisiho, South Africa's Limbobo province yesterday. South Africa's coach Norma Plama says it is good to start the tournament on a positive foot. It's good because, you know, we've been putting ourselves out on the top three teams of the world and playing real pressure netball, but, you know, to get an actual win is nice. You know, the players have got to feel the the feeling of a win as well. So, yeah, no, quite pleased with uh, the execution today. Dropped off a bit in the last quarter, but that was a whole new lineup, and they hadn't actually combined together before, so... Yeah, there's a little bit of work to do there. Well, it's for us, it'll be working what we want to work on. As I said, we had to call at, uh, say, five minutes to go. The shooters had to swap leads. Um, the defenders had to play a split circle. Uh, we had to double up on the centre pass. So every now and then we're throwing those sort of things in. So we changed the pattern of play. Um, coming out of defence, if we had a defence throw in, the ball had to go back to the keeper, so I had two drivers going through the midcourt. So things like that. So while we have the opportunity to work on that, because when we get up to the higher competition against England, Australia and New Zealand, we really need all those options so that the girls know what else they can fall back on. And if you don't practice it, well then you never pull it into your game. So it's important for us. Meanwhile, Netball South Africa Vice President Christine Debris is pleased with how things proceeded on the first day, even though action was delayed by at least 30 minutes. The other sides participating in this week-long event are Zambia and South African Presidents 12. Debris says the important thing this week is development of the game in the continent. From the beginning, um, it's all about developing Africa as well as what it is developing our own. That's why we brought our President 12 team with us so we can blood the players, they get used to the international um, um, game. Also, Africa Nepal is a little bit different to everything, the flair is different. So, if the girls can handle this here in Africa Nepal, they're all good and ready for international Nepal as well. Um, for us, also, um, I don't see it such a problem. With Malawi and that, because when we finish with the Diamond Challenge, January we're going into the Quad Series. So we'll be playing England, Australia and New Zealand. In football news, it was emotional scenes after the final whistle of the second semi-final of the 2018 Africa Women's Cup of Nations as Banyana Banyana confirmed their participation at the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup in France. It has been a tournament to remember for the South Africans, becoming the only team in the competition thus far not to lose a match. Their journey to compete with the best in the world began after the disappointment of 2014 in Namibia when they failed to qualify for the 2015 World Cup in Canada. Four years later, its mission accomplished. Banyana Banyana will play in the final of the women's AFCON against the same team they faced in their opening fixture of the tournament. Banyana Banyana coach Desri Ellis is full of praise for everyone who had contributed to the team's success over the years. It's for the whole of the country. It's for all the players. It's for all the coaches. It's for everyone who has played a part over the last many years. Because it's not just now, it's about everything. But I think most importantly, it's for our wonderful sponsor, Cecil. Because they've been the driving force behind this team and they've given us all these opportunities. You know, the Cecil League where we can actually select players from. And and Safa, of course, you know, we've had a fantastic year of preparation. 
Banyana Banyana will now look at making history once again in the same competition. Captain Janine van Veig hopes they can go all the way and win the gold medal in the Nations Cup. It will also be the first time that they win the Continental Showpiece. We need to celebrate what we have accomplished, um, of course, but we have another goal to achieve and it's something that we are capable of doing is lifting that trophy, making history twice in one tournament. Yes, a lot of people will say, well, we beat them in the group stage, but it will definitely not be the exact same game. They will come out really strong to defend their title. Finally, rugby news. Juan Manuel Leguizamon has been promised a starting role for the Barbarians against Argentina in Saturday's Kilik Cup encounter at Twickenham. The Pumas legend takes on his international teammates for the first time as part of an invitation side made up of eight different nationalities. The bulk of the squad come from South Africa's side, but head coach Rashi Rasmus insists he's taking a multicultural approach and one that puts entertainment and enjoyment at the top of the list. The last Barbarian side did so emphatically against England with nine tries that included a Chris Ashton head trick in a record 63-45 win. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories, an Africa rise and shine at the Sawa Togo's main opposition coalition boycotts December elections. And South Africa's ruling ANC chairperson testifies at state capture inquiry. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Komuto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Double HP with a song titled Futubolo and congratulations to South Africa's Banyana Banyana for qualifying for the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup and the African World Final of the African Nations Cup. Coming in this girls are bit of a be jump. Grab a cab home, call me next up. Me, Matty, show me. From blackness, me only rock those who know him.
music, I'm commending your beautiful look. I wasn't going to comment. I'll be honest, Lanta was gonna pass, but then you look like a goddess. I thought I'd come over and ask you, Hori. Oh, Jala Le Mongo, Pala Le Mongo. If no, let's throw. I'll take you home with a home. Bought a bus for Malazire, Botswana, who knew. You are hell by the border, yellow battery, boy. Fit like OG, skin looking like no lean. Like Lebo Machine, that's so queen, you're so clean. Ngaro Tapaga, he's there to meet me. You only leave me get a man. Forget about it today, I'll get it, get it. Leave your things in, bags in front, more get it, get, get it. But I go tied up, like Sando said, baby, go when I'm doing great. Oh. Oh. 